Well, we've been, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts, and last week we talked about Paul, who was falsely accused by the Hellenistic Jews uh, from Asia, probably from Ephesus, the last uh, town that he'd been chased out of. And, uh, and as he goes to Jerusalem to preach the gospel uh, to the people there in, in the, uh, the city where the temple of God is, the Hellenistic Jews from Asia follow him and are trying to stir up a riot, and they were successful. And they've pulled in probably literally thousands of people have rushed to the temple area because Paul has been accused of two very egregious sins. Number one is rejecting Mosaic law, and secondly, violating and defiling the temple by bringing Gentiles in. Both of these accusations were, uh, were erroneous and uh, were false. It was slander, and yet uh, these Hellenistic Jews had an agenda, and that was to, uh, to bring Paul to uh, his demise, to actually kill him. And so Paul is actually in the middle of a riot in the Temple Mount area. Uh, the fortress of Antonia is, is adjacent to the temple. It's two, two stories high. There are about 400 to 500 troops that are housed there uh, for just such an occasion. And the commander is called down, and uh, he rushes down with his troops to try to uh, bring some peace to this riot that's taking place. And they're, they're basically pulling Paul uh, away from a severe, severe beating. As we talked about last week, uh, the beating that we're talking about is not just a couple of guys upset with a guy and, and uh, body blows. We're talking about uh, clubs and sticks, and we're talking about hundreds of people, probably thousands, that are, that are rushing to this area to defend the Temple Mount against what they believe is, is a, a defilement that's taking place. And so as the commander who is uh, uh, trying to rescue Paul realizes the severity of the situation, Paul actually has to be carried out on the shoulders of these troops. And as he's mounting the steps into the fortress of Antonia where there would be safety in these barracks, he turns to the commander and asks for permission to speak to this raging mob. And, um, you know, the truth is I'm really surprised that he was given permission, but it was God's grace and I think also probably just very surprising to the commander that a man under the, these conditions, having been severely beaten, beaten probably having broken bones, contusions, uh, lacerations, and, uh, and in bad shape, is asking in a respectful way to be able to speak to this crowd. And that's where we pick up the text in chapter 21, verse 40, and then reading uh, the balance of chapter 22. So if you'll join me there in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 40. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they, when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I was near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. 
My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture this morning. And God, we're asking that you would use it to advance your kingdom in our life. God, open our eyes enlighten our minds, and enable us to see things that we've never seen, never understood, never applied quite like this this morning before. Holy Spirit, have your way. I've prepared, but I know that this has to be your message. And so speak to us. Speak to me. Speak to your people. And may we hear and respond according to your will. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. It's interesting that in these opening verses, we find that Paul is, is asking permission. Now keep in mind that he's a bloody mess. He's been beaten severely. They were attempting to kill him. They weren't just trying to teach him a lesson. Their intention was his death. And in the midst of all this, Paul has the presence of mind to speak respectfully to the commander, ask for permission, be granted permission, and then has the, the wherewithal has to be the Spirit of God enabling him to do this, to actually have a strategy on how he is going to present his case 
to this raging mob. And he begins by making a very strategic decision to speak in Aramaic. Now, most of us are thinking, why? Why would he speak in Aramaic? Well, uh, Aramaic is kind of a, a, it's a dialect of Hebrew, but it also includes Syriac. It is actually the ancient form of Chaldean. And for most people who are Hellenistic Jews, they wouldn't understand it. Anyone that was Roman and spoke Greek would not really be that familiar with Aramaic. They would kind of catch bits and pieces of it along the way, but they wouldn't understand any, uh, everything that happened. It's like if one of you visitors to the island went down to Kealia and, and sat down at the table with some local guys and started trying to have a conversation, I guarantee you're going to have, it's, you're going to get some words that you'll understand and they're going to be speaking pidgin and you're going to be a little lost. That's basically what was happening with the Hellenistic Jews. They, they would pick up little pieces of it, they would get most of it, but they wouldn't understand everything. And that was very strategic for Paul to do. The reason was is that these Hellenistic Jews that were from Ephesus were the ones that were inciting the riot. He wanted to linguistically bypass those Jews and speak to the heart of the Jerusalem native Jews. Just amazing. This guy is just a, he's a genius, but it's really God behind him. That's what God does with people who serve him, is he gives them the right strategy, the right method, the right words at the right moment. He promised that we would have that, and he gave it to the apostle Paul. And so he directs his comments to these native Jews in Jerusalem to win their hearts over. Now, it's interesting because the opening words that he says are so respectful. Brothers and fathers, you know, not you riotous mob, you, you cruel, you know, ruthless sinners, but he's, he's addressing them respectfully. He had probably from a human standpoint every right to be angry and yet he addressed them in a calm and loving way. There's a, there's a passage in scripture that was actually written after the time of these events by the apostle Peter in chapter three, verse 15, where he encourages us as, as believers to respond in a similar fashion when under pressure. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior may be ashamed of their slander. And that's exactly what Paul did. He's being attacked. He's being violated. They were attempting to take his life, and yet he still means the composure of a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he says what his intentions are in verse, uh, the last part of verse 1. He wants to make his defense. Now, the word is apologia in the Greek. It's where we get our word uh, to apologize. And most of the time when we think about apologizing, we think about you know, saying we're sorry. It's some expression of regret. But apologia in Greek actually means to make a defense for oneself or for a cause that you're defending. And that's where we get our, our English word apologetics. Apologetics is the, is the capacity to defend your faith against uh, uh, um, theological attack. And so Paul is about to make his apology. But interestingly, you'll note as we go through this text that he makes no reference to uh, Trophimus, who they thought he had brought into the temple, who was Greek. No mention of the defilement of the temple. No mention of the Mosaic law in the sense that Paul was making a defense for himself. Paul isn't interested in defending himself. Paul is about to make a case for Christ. Paul is going to make a defense for the gospel, not for himself. And so we find that he begins in, uh, in the verses three through five, uh, with his background, his conversion, his healing, and his commission 
uh, that God gave him. Now, I, I want to stop just for a moment because I'm thinking, what, what could possibly motivate a man to go to a place where he's already been told repeatedly through prophecy that he's going to be in bonds and chains, that he's going to be persecuted, and that he's going to suffer? So my question is, why would a guy even go to a place like that in the first place? And secondarily, once he got there, and he'd only been there for, for just a few days, about seven days, when, this, when these events happened, he, he incites a riot because of slander from these Hellenistic Jews from Ephesus who followed him. And he's beaten severely. And, you know, it, you know we've seen riots on TV before, either uh, national, uh, nationally here in the United States or we've seen them overseas. Most rioting that takes place is against a government or it's against, a, 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 you know, the bourgeoisie. It's the, it's the upper class or it's against some union or some company. And it's, it's violent. But it's rare that we actually see a riot against an individual man who's not a president of some country. And Paul is facing thousands the Bible says in the text that we read last week that all of Jerusalem honed in on this area of the Temple Mount and they came running from every quadrant of Jerusalem to protect the Temple Mount. And all of that energy and all of that anger and all of that, that evil is focused on not dozens of men or on shops, but on one man, and it's the Apostle Paul. And he wants to now get up and make a defense for Christ, for the gospel. In other words, he's still trying to win these people to Jesus. What could possibly motivate a man to, to, to not give up? I, I mean, I, I would be telling Paul if I was there, Paul, give it a rest. They're not interested. They don't want to hear what you have to say. But he will not stop. And the question is why. I want to give you four uh, things that, uh, that the Lord laid on my heart as possibilities. Number one, he wanted to be obedient to the commission of Christ. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission. Acts 1, 8, uh, the call of Christ to be witnesses everywhere. And so Paul was acting in obedience to that command. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he had a, a, a trust that had been given to him to discharge, and he said, I will discharge it. I will do the job. I will spread and share and communicate the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, because he says, the love of Christ compels me, that's why I preach. In other words, he's so driven internally because of this overpowering, overflowing compassion that God has put in his heart, even for his enemies, that he won't back away. And the last thing is Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, where he articulately shares his love and devotion to his fellow Jews and his willingness to even be accursed before God, lose his place in the kingdom of God if it would mean the salvation of his brothers and his sisters in Judaism. I have to be honest with you, I don't think I've got this kind of passion. You know, maybe God would give it to me in the moment, but I look at this and I'm, I'm dumbfounded. I'm, I'm humbled. And yet all over the world, people are facing this kind of persecution and they're standing up as bravely as Paul is. So I can only assume if that moment came that God would give me the grace and he would also give you the grace. I just got a report from... Uh, a friend of mine that, I, that I've traveled twice to India with to preach and to teach at seminaries and Bible colleges. And he wrote me and said, the trip for this year is off. And I'm thinking, why? He continues on in the email and he gives me an attachment. I read it. And it's a report that the areas that we were in this, uh, this last trip uh, in a nearby village called Arissa, 
that they have passed an anti-conversion law in India. And uh, anyone that uh, attempts to convert or passes out tracts or tries to communicate the gospel uh, is fair game. They can be beaten, they can be killed. 90 churches in that, in that region that we just went to uh, were burned down. Uh, some of the pastors have been killed and their families have been murdered. And all of these people uh, are living for Jesus and they're still preaching the gospel. And as I read the report from GFA, a Gospel for Asia, they said these, the, the students and the staff are just continue to go out. They will not stop. Why? For the very same reasons that Paul was unwilling to stop. Obedience to Christ and for the love of God's people that he's calling to himself. So Paul begins to share his defense, and it really isn't so much a defense in the, in the terms that we think of. It's really a testimony. And that's why I've entitled the message Paul's Testimony. There are really three things that are modeled for us here that I want to I give you the big picture first and then we'll dive into the details. But the big picture is that he breaks his testimony down into three components. The first component is what his life was like before Christ, and that's noted for us in verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 16, he describes his conversion experience, how he came to Christ. And then in verses 17 through 21, he talks about what life was Christ with Christ was like after he was converted. And I'm going to talk about this more in just a moment, but I want you to see these components because as you share your testimony with people, which I hope you do and I know you do, so many of you are, are telling me about the people you're sharing your faith with and people coming to Christ and you're inviting them to the church and they're reading the Bible and you're praying with them and you're, you're discipling them. And it's just, I get so encouraged by those testimonies that, that I hear from you or that I hear about your life uh, about your testimony and how God's using it. But a testimony is basically made up of three things. What was your life like before Christ? How did you come to Christ? And then fill in some detail with some scriptures so that they're hearing the word of God. And then thirdly, what's your life like now as a follower of Jesus Christ? And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But Paul begins by describing what his life was like before Christ. He begins by making a connection and identifying with his Jewish listeners which is always a wise thing to do, is to find a point of connection. And Paul does that skillfully by first of all saying, I'm a Jew. He could relate both to the Hellenistic Jews by birth, by language, and by travel, and also to the native Jews by language, upbringing, and his training in Jerusalem. He describes his birthplace in Tarsus of Cilicia, which may not mean a lot to us, but it was a very well-known city at that time, known for its culture, known for its education, and well-known for its standing in Asia Minor as one of the premier cities at that time. He also says that he was trained by Gamaliel. Gamaliel, we were introduced to in chapter 5 of, of Acts in verses 33 through 39, where when Peter and the disciples are preaching the gospel right at the beginning of the church, the Sanhedrin is, is up in arms, they convene a meeting, and they're bound and determined to kill these guys. But Gamaliel steps forward as one of the members of the Sanhedrin and says, be very careful what you do. And his advice was, if, if this is not from God, it'll die out. Leave it alone. But if it is from God and you fight it, you may find yourselves fighting against God. And they took Gamaliel's advice. He was appreciated, he was loved, and he's one of the five most famous and well-known and most appreciated rabbis in all of Judaism and their history. And he also happened to have died just a year or two before the events that we're looking at here in this text. And so Paul, in essence, is saying, look, I'm not an Egyptian terrorist, you know? I'm not just some guy that fell off a wagon here. I'm a Jew, 
I'm a gentleman and I'm a scholar. And he goes on to say some negative things about his life. He said, I was just as jealous for God as you were. Just as jealous. He, he emphasizes this in Galatians when he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So again, he identifies himself. But then he goes a step further and says things I'd probably leave out of my testimony. And maybe you might too if you were him. He persecuted the followers of the way. You know, oftentimes I, I've thought in the past that maybe Paul was just the guy that was pushing the papers and, and drawing up the orders, that he didn't really kill anybody, but that he just arranged for the death of believers, that he was just kind of the, the, the guy in the, in, the, uh, in the suit, but it wasn't true. The Greek here is thanatos, persecuted. Thanatos means to put to death. So Paul, of his own admission, says, I put to death the people that were following Christ Jesus, referred to as the way. He arrested both men and women. This gets embarrassing, you know, if you arrest men, but you're arresting women. He arrested entire families. Entire families were put to death at the order and the hand of the Apostle Paul. You know, this is something I want to share with you about, uh, about a meaningful testimony is that Paul didn't gloss over his failures and his sins. Sometimes there's a part of us that when we're giving our testimony, we want to leave the, the really negative parts about our life out. You know, we, want to, we don't really want to highlight how bad we are. We just want to say, you know, gloss over what our life was like before and then say how great God was and he just kind of cleaned me up a little bit. You know, and I'm just, how oh, it feels good to be clean. You know, I want you to be clean too. But we really leave out some of the details. And I'm not suggesting at all, by the way, that you should be graphic in your testimony and tell, you know, details that are inappropriate for the, for the context of your sharing. However, the thing I want to point out to you is that Paul was not, uh, he, he didn't favor himself in his testimony. He got right out there and said, look, I, I was, women and children, I went after them. I put them to death. I'm grieved about it now, but the truth is, is that I was doing exactly what your heart is, is, is demonstrating and what your lives are, are conveying, is this, this animus, this hatred toward Christianity. And so Paul completely owns all of that ugliness about his own life. I was thinking about what the benefits are of, of being this candid and this honest in your testimony. And I think it's helpful. It, it, it builds a connection with the people we're sharing with. It, it tells them that we're not really that different. The first thing I thought about is that when I share honestly about the person I really was and I really am, it, it, it develops a humility in my life because I'm thinking, but for the grace of God, go I. And not only that, but that's what I was. And I have to own that. And it really does keep a person more humble than they would be otherwise. The, the second thing I thought about the benefit of sharing honestly is that it keeps me thankful. Why? Because forgetfulness always leads to ingratitude and discontent. And after you've been a Christian for 15 or 20 or 30 years, you kind of forget how ugly you were. And, and you've kind of got this picture that you were always, you know, a follower of Jesus, you know? It's not true. And it reminds me and keeps me thankful and content. And the last thing I think that's a benefit of being honest and candid about what our lives were really like is that it keeps us approachable. Paul didn't lecture his audience. He identified with them. And they were listening very carefully Paul begins in verse 6 to describe now his conversion experience, how he came to Christ. By the way, this is the second of three accounts 
of Paul's testimony that we have in the book of Acts alone. I'm sure there were many other times when he shared his testimony, but we've got three accounts, the actual events, this account, and then another account that he'll be relaying in chapter 26. And, um, you know, he really places a lot of emphasis on a testimony. And I want to take just a minute, and I want to talk about why a testimony is so important and why it can be so powerful. Number one is that you are an authority on your conversion. You may not feel like you're an authority in theology. You may not feel like you know every verse in the Bible. You may not be able to answer every question someone has, but you are an absolute authority on your own experience in knowing Christ. And so because of that, you have something to say. The second benefit of a, of a testimony is that people love stories. They love hearing. You know, they'll even listen to you even if they, they think you're completely out to lunch. But if you have a good story about what God has done in your life and you're candid and honest and you lay it out, they're like, whoa, that happened to you? And they're thinking to themselves, I'm not that different than they are, you know? And they keep listening and they, they want to hear the rest of the story. So even if someone isn't interested in Christ, they will listen to a testimony when they won't listen to a sermon and they won't tune in to some channel on TV that has Christian programming and they won't listen to a radio station, but they will listen to you if you share your testimony. The third thing is that your testimony is unique and powerful. You have the only testimony exactly like yours on the planet. And that's something, it's like a fingerprint. And that makes every testimony fascinating and interesting. And the last reason why a testimony is so powerful is because God actually commands us to share our testimony. And so when we do what God commands, fruit comes from that. And so I want to encourage you to never underestimate the power of a personal testimony. And so you may feel like you're not equipped or adequate or you don't know all the answers. You can just tell them, I don't know. But let me tell you what I do know. I happen to be an authority on what he's done in my life. And I'd like to share that story with you. And so I want to encourage you at the back of your, uh, uh, your outline, you'll notice in the application section that I encourage you to develop your testimony, to write it out, to actually go through the exercise of, of uh, really putting it a pen to paper and, and defining and, and kind of honing and shaping and, and uh, writing out this testimony so that when you have opportunity to share it, you're ready and kind of not stumbling through it. But Paul begins by telling his testimony and he's confronted on the road to Damascus. And I've already taught on this, so I'm not going to go into detail except to say that the Lord himself, Jesus, confronts Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I don't know if we can even grasp how shocking this statement must have been to Paul because Paul had devoted his entire life to defending and protecting God. Of course, it was in his own strength and it was in his own flesh, but it was his desire to advance the purposes of God. And now for the first time in his life, he's confronted by the true nature of his crime. He wasn't persecuting people. He was persecuting God. I thought about this and I thought, boy, it's, a, it's, it's so important and such a dangerous thing to mess with God's people. <laughs> That's the thing that came to my mind. Just don't ever mess with God's people. It's you just don't want to do that. You don't want to go there. And it kind of comes from two angles. One is from Zechariah chapter 2.8. It says, whoever touches you touches the apple of God's eye. The apple is just kind of the center, the core of your eye. If somebody goes kind of jabbing you in the eyeball, what do you normally do? It's like, hey, hey, you know, that's my eye, you know? It's not a basketball. It's not an orange. 
You know, that's sensitive material you're touching there. And this is what God does. He says, whenever someone touches a believer or one of his children, he says, you're touching my eye. Not you're touching me. You're touching my eye. Very sensitive. God's very protective of his people. And so it's a great comfort to know that when somebody's kind of jabbing you in the chest at some level, whatever it is, through, you know, hassling you in some way or giving you a hard time or slandering you or gossiping or whatever, is just step aside because they're poking God in the eye and God will take care of it. So entrust yourself to him and continue to do good. But there's another application of this and that's simply this, that when we or when I sin against someone else, I'm not simply sinning against that person. I'm sinning against God because that person is made in the image of God. So if I choose to be unkind or disrespectful or unloving or impatient with my wife, I'm not just sinning against my wife. I'm also sinning simultaneously against God. I'm poking him in the eye. If I sin against my children, poking God in the eye. If I sin against a brother or sister in the church, I'm poking God in the eye. If I sin against people in the community, even if they're unbelievers, made in his image, I am poking God in the eye. See how serious God takes all this? It's just a great reminder to me that I've got to be so careful about how I treat everyone. I want to treat everyone right anyway, but there's also this, this fear in my heart. I don't, do any of you want to poke God in the eye this morning? Any of you want to be guilty of that? But that's what happens whenever we violate another person through our attitude or actions or ungodly behavior or impatience or whatever you want to put in. That's one of the reasons why, by the way, when uh, I encourage people, when you repent of your sin, a very help, helpful statement uh, that I include in my confession is, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God because you're made in his image. And it really brings it home to me how serious this is. What that does, it's a big deterrent for me against just kind of repetition, repetition in my sin of, of going back again and saying, okay, well, whatever, I did it. Yeah, okay, I'll, okay, forgive me again, you know. I apologize. It's a very different thing when I recognize I'm poking God in the eye. And so Jesus Christ is coming to Paul and said, hey, Paul, can you get your fingers out of my eyeball here? You're not persecuting these people. Ultimately, you're persecuting me. And Paul is, is dumbfounded. He asks some questions. We'll get to those in a minute. But he's instructed by Christ to get up and go to Damascus, and he would be told what had been assigned for him to do. I love this. Do you realize that by just virtue of what Jesus is saying here is that I believe every believer has been assigned certain things to do. You've been assigned divine appointments. You've been assigned opportunities to serve. You've been assigned certain gifts and skills and background, just like Paul was. You have all of these, these things in your history and you're kind of wondering, why? I wonder why I have all these experiences. And God says, he's assigned all of these things to you for the assignment that's ahead. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has created us to serve and to work for his good pleasure, that he's actually prepared good works in advance for you to walk in. And so I don't know about you, I, I find this exhilarating. I find it exciting. I think to myself, where was I for the first like 10 years of my life when I just thought the Christian life was just kind of being a good person? You know, you just try to be good and get along with God. And that's kind of what I, kind of my perspective. I was missing the adventure. The adventure is this assignment that every day I get up and I realize that God has got a plan. And if I'm willing to enter into it, it's, a, it's, a, it's just like Christmas every day. It's just, I have no idea what's going to happen. 
Of course, I've got a plan and I'm praying and I'm wanting to carry out the will of God, but I'm prepared for interruptions and I'm actually hoping that they'll come because they, they're attached to the divinity of God and amazing things happen when you are actually available to do as well. But listen what happens to Paul. He's told that he's to go to Damascus and, and Jesus says, and then the next information will be given you. And if I'm the apostle Paul, I'm thinking, uh, can't you give it to me now? You know, I'd like to know what I'm, what's gonna happen next, you know? But Jesus doesn't give him any of that information. And I think to myself, it must have been somewhat difficult for the great apostle Paul who was not used to being given orders to have to go under the command of now God with so little information. And so he finds himself under the command of Jesus Christ, submitting himself to these very basic instructions. One of the things that I, I wanna encourage you with is that oftentimes I find in my own life that I have very basic instructions and I don't have the whole picture. Uh, I can't be the only one that would so love to see the answers uh, to the questions I have. And I would love to know how things are gonna turn out, like now for a week from now. Um, I'd love to know how this crisis or that problem or this opportunity is all gonna unfold. Wouldn't you like to know? Okay, it's just me, I'm the only one. I, the, I'm assuming that there are probably at least a handful of us that sometimes feel a little bit frustrated with a lack of information. <laughs> And here we find the Apostle Paul and he's given just a little information. He's, he's, Jesus says, you poke me in the eye, go back to, uh, to, to Damascus and you'll be told what to do. And I'm thinking, whoa, you know, this is, is this all I get? Why does God sometimes give us such basic, incomplete information? I wanna, I wanna share with you just a few of my observations. I think the first is to test our obedience. Is he truly the Lord of our life? Do we have to have the whole picture in order to be in agreement with him to then obey him? Or will we simply obey the basic information he gives? Here's basic information right here. This is basic information. It's not just basic. This is in depth. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. He gives us so much information, but sometimes this information, quite frankly, for us isn't enough. And we say, unless we have more information, no, I'm not gonna do that. But the Apostle Paul responds, and I think it was to test his obedience. I think the other reason that God doesn't give us all the information is he wants to empty us of our own plans and designs. Our planning and our strategizing gets in the way of God's ultimate work so often. And so God sometimes gets us to the point where we're just collapsed. We got no plan. Everything that we have tried has not worked. And then God comes in with the next basic information and takes us the next step. And I think the final reason that God oftentimes only gives us basic information is to teach us to walk by faith. And so I can only assume that most of us here have incomplete information. And the thing I want to share with you is that this was a major, major first step for the Apostle Paul in his growth in Christ. And this is a major, major important step in your life that you not know the rest of the story right now. When you need to know it, God will show you. In the meantime, do what you already know to do and that he's already made clear that you should do. Now, there are two questions that Paul asks in this encounter with Jesus Christ, and I want to talk about this just briefly because they're so important. The first thing out of Paul's mouth is, who are you, Lord? And the second one is, what shall I do, Lord? These are questions that every man and woman has to, has to ask and has to have an answer to. The first is, who are you, Lord? And that's been answered by 
Jesus Christ. He said, I am Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you've been persecuting. So he identifies himself. So Paul immediately gets the answer. Now that he has the answer of who Jesus Christ is, notice the immediacy and the, the rapidity of his next question, which is, what shall I do? In light of who you are, what's my agenda? What's the calling? So in this very brief encounter, what we've got is that Paul has to do a complete about face in his, his entire life's agenda, which was to eradicate Christianity and to support traditional Judaism. And in, in, in this momentary conversation and encounter with Jesus Christ, he makes a 180 and says, I was wrong. You are God. I accept that now. Now, what shall I do, Lord? What are your marching orders? That second question can't be answered until the first question is asked and answered. We have to ask, who are you, Lord? And when that question is answered, the next question is mandatory. It's what shall I do? But if we ask the first question and to our satisfaction have an answer that Jesus Christ is indeed God, then he has absolute authority. And if we don't ask the second question, we haven't understood the answer to the first question. Does that make sense? Have I lost anybody? If you ask the first question and get an answer that he's God and then don't ask the second question, you haven't understood his lordship yet. That he has the right to have us ask only one question is, what's next? It's your life. It's your show. It's your program. Not mine. And so Paul asks both of these very important questions of God. And so Jesus Christ instructs him and tells him to go back to Damascus where he's going to meet a man. And of course, Paul didn't know that at the time, but he just went. And he met a man named Ananias who God, as we know in, uh, in Acts chapter 9, came to and met in a vision and explained to Ananias who was, uh, the Bible tells us that he was a devout observer of the law. He was highly respected. He was a disciple of Christ. Uh, we also know that he may have been very well a leader of the church in Damascus and may have been one of the primary targets of, of Paul's uh, diabolical plan to eradicate the leadership of the church. And so Ananias gets this word from the Lord and the Lord says to him, Ananias, I got this guy that's going to be coming to see you. He's going to be coming to Damascus. And, uh, and I want you to love this guy. I want you to bless him. And uh, he's going to come kind of blind and he's going to be coming kind of confused, but he's my man for the Gentile nation. He's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So take good care of him, Ananias. And Ananias says, well, what's his name? It's Saul from Tarsus. What? <laughs> Lord, haven't you heard? I mean, you know, have you ever done that with God? Like, God, I need to inform you of a few things about my situation here. You know, like God doesn't know. But he says, don't you know who this guy is? He's, he's killing people. He's coming here to get me and my family and my kids and my wife. And God says, go. Again, we've got another man who's got incomplete information, doesn't know how it's going to turn out. What does Ananias do? He goes and he obeys. Why? I would suggest to you because Ananias had asked the first question, who are you, Lord? And had a satisfactory answer that Jesus Christ was Lord. And once that question had been answered, the next one is obligatory, which is what shall I do? Give me my marching orders. And he obeyed promptly. Well, Paul is, uh, has this encounter with Ananias and Ananias lovingly calls him brother. It's amazing what God can do. And he stretches out his hand and he heals his enemy, 
through prayer. Amazing. The blessing that God has called us to be even to those that hate us and persecute us. And the Bible tells us why that we might be sons of God of our Father in heaven. That's the evidence that we are truly born again as these kind of activities. And so in verse 14 through 16, we find this, this commissioning that, that God gives Paul, not directly, but through Ananias. And Ananias prophesies over him and says to the apostle, you have been chosen for a relationship with Christ. And there are three things that he mentions here briefly in verse 14. You've been chosen to know God's will. You've been chosen to see the righteous one. And you have been chosen to hear words from his mouth. These are, these are really big things. Chosen to know the will of God. Do you know that I believe that you've been chosen to know the will of God? That God doesn't want you in the dark. You may not have the whole plan, but God has chosen you specifically that you might know his will. That's one component of the reason that he selected you. How can we know his will? It's probably one of the most uh, basic questions that I hear from people in the church. How can I know God's will? Is this the right person to marry? Is this the right job to take? Geographically, is this the right location I should be in? All of these kinds of questions, God actually tells us how we can know his will. Romans 12, 2. I'll read it to you. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So he tells us there are basically two components. One is that we need to be careful to not allow our hearts to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Why? Because if we ask the, the first question, who are you, come up with Jesus Christ as Lord, then the second question is already a given. What do you want me to do? And what God doesn't want us to do is to be conformed to the pattern of this world. That's why he saved us, to save us out of the pattern of the world and to give us a new pattern, which is the kingdom of God. And so uh, we need to leave that, that conforming desire. And all of us have it. You know, sometimes we're kind of like, you know, two feet in the kingdom and then a foot's kind of dangling our toes into the world. And sometimes then we're swimming and sometimes we're splashing and sometimes diving in, you know. And God says, you will never really know my will if you're compromised in that fashion. So we've got to be careful not to be conformed. And then he says the other thing is, is let your mind be transformed and renewed. How does that happen? It happens through the reading of God's word. It happens through fellowship. It happens through worship. That's why it, at our fellowship here is we constantly are, are pointing you to the word of God, that you might be students of this wonderful book, that you might meditate on it, that you might memorize it, that you might know and have relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondarily, he's been ordained and chosen to see the righteous one. It's a reference to Christ. I won't spend time on it right now except to say that Paul repeatedly says, I am a witness. I haven't just heard about Jesus, but I have personally see him, seen him as one born of late. In other words, all the other apostles saw, saw, saw Jesus in person. Paul, Saul, saw him on the Damascus road and through a variety of visions, but he himself also was a witness of the righteous one. And also he was chosen to hear the words from God's mouth. And again, uh, these are things that we're chosen for. I want to suggest to you that before Paul is given any other calling, he's given a call to intimacy with God. And the, the, the thing that I want to get across that the Lord's put on my heart in this component of this text is that we have to have intimacy with God if we're going to serve him. We, we can't run out of, this, out of the barn with, you know, just a, a lot of zeal but not enough information or, or no relationship with God. 
And I would suggest to you that even when we run out of our houses morning by morning without having spent time in the Word of God, we are ill-prepared for the day. Now, occasionally that happens, but if that's a pattern in a person's life, then we're not really ready for the next thing that God wants us to do, which is to be fruitful and useful in his hand because we're going into the battle without any kind of ammunition or preparation. The second thing that we find uh, Paul is commissioned to do is to be a witness for Christ of what he had seen and heard. And then he was commanded to be obedient to Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus said, get up immediately. He uses the word quick. And I love what Paul does. He just gets up immediately. One of my favorite verses when it comes to to rapid obedience is found in, in Psalm 119, verse 32. It says, I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. Isn't that a great verse? I run in the path of your commands. Why would, it, why would the psalmist run in the path of commands? Because he's asked the first question, who are you, Lord? And he's also asked the second question, what shall I do? And when God says something, the psalmist runs in the path of God's commands. And, you know, I want to encourage you. I see a lot of running going on in our church. And I see you running in the path of God's commands. We're not doing it perfectly. I know that you struggle. I struggle. We all have times when, we, when we're running in the wrong direction. We're kind of like Jonah. Uh, but for the most part, I see you running, getting up, moving toward Christ and toward his work. I want to encourage you. Just be like a psalmist. Run in the path of God's commands. Don't resist. Don't fight him. Don't find another strategy. Don't wait until you have all the information before you respond. But just run. If he tells you to do something, Run. Even if you don't even remember Abram, what was he lauded for by God? What was the basis of his righteousness? It was because God said, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees. I want you to just get up and move away. Where? I'll tell you later. And it was on the basis of that that he was credited with righteousness because he just ran in the path of God's commands. I don't know what you're going to get out of this message this morning. God is going to do different things in each of us. But I pray at the very least that we would be a people that would run in the path of God's commands. My, my guess is that there are some of you that, maybe many of us, that are, are thinking about areas where, where we already know the right thing to do and we've been fighting it. And even now you're having a struggle and you're going, don't listen to this part, don't listen to this part. You know, white noise, white noise, you know. And I just want to encourage you to absorb whatever it is the Spirit of God is saying and make a determination to run in the path of God's commands. Jesus encourages them to be baptized and to call on the name of the Lord. When a person calls on the name of the Lord, they're recognizing and submitting to the deity of Christ, to his authority, to his sovereignty, to his power, to his word, and to his grace. So when we're running, we're really acknowledging that he has every right to command us to do what, whatever he wants us to do. Every woman and child and man has the responsibility to make this choice as it relates to their eternal destiny. It's true that God elects. It's true that God predestines. It's true that God foreknows. But the eternal truth found in God's word over and over, most notably in in Joel chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 2, where it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we have the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the election of God, and the free will of man. I've, I, I can't do anything except be comfortable with the information that God gives me in the Bible and say, amen, 
<laughs> to both. And yet to recognize that the Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Paul is encouraged to call on the name of the Lord, and he does so. In verse 17 through 21, we have an account of Paul going back to Jerusalem, experiencing this trance while he's praying. Uh, the best definition I can come up for trance, it's actually ecstasis in the Greek where we get our word ecstasy from. It's a state of mind when a man's spirit is enabled to discern and experience unseen things. So Paul has this, it's not a dream, it's not a vision, but it's this ecstatic experience and it happens during a time of prayer. And, um, you know, the, the problem with this passage, to be honest, in teaching it is that there are like hundreds of things I want to talk to you about and I don't have time. But I want to talk about prayer just for a minute here because is there, don't, don't you want to experience God? Don't you want to, to have relationship with him and have dynamic empowerment by him? Don't you want to see God? Don't you want to see his activity? Don't you want to have your eyes open to things that you've never seen before and have encounters with God along with just the normal parts of the relationship? Occasionally have those moments where God just like blows you away in your quiet time or, or in some situation you're praying about? Well, what I can tell you is that over and over in the New Testament, in particular in the book of Acts, those times come while God's people pray. That's it. That's my single-step seminar on how to experience the power of God is to pray. Is to pray. And I'm not talking about, you know, Lord, I lay myself down to sleep. I'm not talking about, you know, thanks for the meal. I'm not, I'm not saying open my eyes for my quiet time. I'm talking about prayer. I'm talking about extending yourself in relationship with God. God says to pray over and over and over in the Bible. What's the response of a believer who's asked the first question and had the answer? That he's Lord. The second question is, what shall I do? And he says, pray. And we say, oh, man, I don't know. I'm kind of busy. I've had so many things. I'll, oh, God, just thanks for being so gracious. You know, whoop, out the door. Are you following me? So if you want to experience more of God, then be in his word, be in relationship with him more, and then simply do what the New Testament saints did as they prayed. They just loved being in the presence of God, and God met them at those moments with visions and revelation of himself in very powerful ways. And in this vision, he's instructed by the Lord. And again, remember, he's conveying this all in his testimony to these Jews who want to kill him. And he was instructed by the Lord to leave Jerusalem because the Jews wouldn't accept Christ's testimony. Now, that's a stinging rebuke to the Jews, but it gets worse because then Jesus says to Paul in this vision, I want you to take the message that the Jews are rejecting and I want you to take it to the Gentiles far away. And if you know anything about church history or anything about relationship between Jews and Gentiles, this is like a match, you know, in a, in a, in a house filled with propane. That's what it is. It's an explosion because the Jews can accept that Jesus is, or that God is, is putting them to the side because he's done it many times before in the Old Testament. But they were outraged, outraged that Paul would suggest that they were going to be bypassed and that God would reach the Gentiles with this message that the Jews had rejected. And so the whole place goes ballistic again and they're trying to kill Paul. Now, meantime, the commander, he's got his hundreds of guys all standing there on the steps of Antonia at the fortress there. And uh, he you have to understand, he doesn't know what's being said at all. He doesn't speak Aramaic. He's Greek. 
And so he's listening to this whole thing and he's watching Paul and he's looking at the people and he's watching Paul and he's looking at the people and seeing the passion of Paul and the love of Paul and he's watching the, the, the rapt attention of the audience and he's thinking, this is going pretty good. This is getting better. We might not have to arrest this guy. And then, and then Paul says something and he doesn't know exactly what it is, but, you know, World War III. And it just goes off and he's like, what did you say? What did you say? Get this guy out of here. And they run up the steps, you know, and they get Paul in there and he says, you're getting flogged. I'm gonna find out what you said. You're saying stuff. You're making people upset. And so he threatens to flog Paul. I'm, I'm summarizing some of these things because of time. All these insults are shouted at Paul. They're ready to flog him. Flogging was brutal, by the way. It was one of the most brutal forms of Roman torture. They would stretch a man out, strip him down, tie his hands and his feet to a pole or stretch him out over a, a, a block of wood. And then they would get a, a, a whip that had thongs coming off of it, you know, of leather, maybe four or five or seven. And at the ends and all scattered through, tied on, would be pieces of bone and metal that were jagged. And that, that, that whip would be applied by a guy that's twice my size and a lot more muscular and was, trained war, was a trained warrior. And he would apply that whip to the back of the, the back area, the buttocks and the legs of, of the victim and there would be a ripping that would take place. And in that ripping, the flesh would come off. Very few people survived flogging. And those that did were most often crippled at the end of that experience. And as they're tying Paul up, I can't believe the presence of mind of this guy. I mean, if I were Paul, I'd be like, please don't flog me, you know? I mean, it just, I hope I wouldn't sound like that, but I might, you know, I mean. <laughs> I might just kind of crumble, you know? I don't know. I don't know what I would do. But Paul, by the power of the Spirit, and here's the thing I want to say again, is that God will give you the strength that you need for whatever you face. Whatever you're facing even now, if you will rely on God, he will give you what you need so that you can go through it not whining, not complaining, not grumbling, but saying, Lord, I put my trust in you. Tell me what to do. I'm looking to you. And Paul does that. And with a peace and calmness and presence of mind, he simply turns to the centurion who's ordering this beating and says, uh, excuse me, am I stretched out okay for you? Okay, um, just a little question. Is this kind of normal to flog a Roman citizen who's not been tried and not convicted? And the centurion is just blown away because it's against the law to beat or to flog a Roman citizen, period, exclamation point. And the person that does that, if they're found guilty, would be put to death for that kind of crime. And so in this final little section uh, that I want to touch on briefly, we find this interaction between the commander who comes down at the request of the centurion and has this dialogue with Paul about his citizenship. And, and there's a point to this that I want to make. The centurion, the, the, the commander comes down and says, is it true that you're a Roman citizen? And Paul says, yes, I am. And the, and the commander says, you know, Gosh, I had to pay a really huge sum of money to become a Roman citizen. And Paul says these very interesting words. He says, but my citizenship is by birthright. There's only three ways that a person could become a Roman citizen. One is that you were by birthright a Roman citizen, or secondarily that you were adopted by a Roman family into that relationship. The second way to be a Roman citizen was through some meritorious act of courage, usually like a commander leading a, a force, a Gentile commander being a part of the Roman troops and suddenly rising to power, doing something very courageous, winning the day, being responsible for a great victory. Maybe 
Maybe that man might be awarded Roman citizenship because of his act of courage. And the third way was through an exorbitant fee. We're talking about a fee that was so high that just a, a, a fraction of a percentile of people in Rome would have been able to afford such a price. Now, why am I sharing all this with you? For the very simple reason that there's a parallel here in citizenship in the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ's death on the cross encompasses all three of these avenues for having citizenship in the kingdom of God. Because we are not citizens of his kingdom because of our sin. We are outside the realm of his kingdom. We are rejected by God apart from Christ and his work on the cross. And so we find ourselves in that same place, facing punishment, stretched out. You know, when a person dies and doesn't know the Lord, they are going to face their maker. And part of that is the judgment that appropriately belongs to a person who's not part of his kingdom. But we find that Jesus Christ on the cross accomplished all three of these requirements for Roman citizenry so that you could become a citizen of the kingdom of God. By birthright, we have lost our birthright to be in the kingdom of God when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. But when Jesus died on the cross and you say yes to him, you have been adopted into the family of God, qualifying you to be in the kingdom of God. Isn't that, I just look at this, I just think this is so wonderful. But he also qualifies us in a second way. Jesus is very thorough. By an heroic act of sacrifice or service, you can qualify for the kingdom. Not by yours, but in this case by Jesus. Willfully of his own accord, going to the cross, taking on human flesh, becoming a man, suffering at the hand of his own creation, and dying a terrible death on the cross. That is the most heroic act ever known to man on the planet, ever will be known to mankind. And Jesus did it, qualifying us to be citizens of his kingdom. And the third qualification, the exorbitant fee. The priceless gift of God's own son is the third qualifying factor for us to have relationship with God. So we're not just qualified on one level, we're qualified on all three levels to be in the kingdom of God and God has made that possible because of Jesus Christ. What's the summation of this message? I wanna just focus in on two things. One is that I believe you're here by divine appointment. I don't believe it's a mistake. I don't believe in coincidence. I believe that you're here on this particular day to hear this particular message for at least one of two reasons. The first possible reason is that you may not have ever responded or even asked the question, who are you, Lord? And if you've never received Christ as your savior, the Bible says that you are outside the citizenry of the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not gonna benefit from this. When the day comes that if you don't receive Christ, if you don't respond to the gospel, you're not only facing the loss of relationship with God, but you are facing most certain punishment for all eternity. And, and all that you have to do is, as you're strapped down in life and all these things are happening to you, as you're strapped down, all you have to do is say, Lord, could you get me out of this? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you qualify me for your citizenship so that I don't have to be punished? And if you call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says that you will be saved. And so maybe some of you are here today and you've maybe been coming to church for a little while, maybe you haven't been to church for a while, but you know that you need to make a decision today and say, Lord, I know who you are. Now, I receive you. What do you want me to do? My life is yours. The second possibility for the rest of us is simply this. 
I believe this text, at least for me, is a, is a great reminder of the power and the calling and the privilege that we have of sharing our testimony. When I was thinking about testimonies, I was thinking about how life-changing they are. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It's powerful. I also think about how wise it is to share our testimony. Proverbs 11.30 tells us that the fruit of, righteous, of the righteous is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise. How do you win a soul? How do you win someone else? You have to make a defense for the gospel. You have to present the case for Christ. And the most powerful form of, of, uh, and venue for doing that is through your own testimony. And the last thing I want to say is how beneficial sharing your testimony is as believers. Paul tells Philemon in, in verse 6, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. When, when I share my testimony with people, I'm like constantly reminded. It reminds me of when I do weddings and vow renewals. My wife loves when I go do a vow renewal. Why? Because I'm sitting there telling this couple about what their life should be like and, and how the husband should behave and conduct himself. And I come home every time and I'm always a better husband. Why? Because I just got reminded about what I'm supposed to be. Every time I share my testimony, it's the same thing. I'm reminding myself as I'm sharing the gospel what amazing things God has done for me. And it promotes a heart of praise and worship and service. We serve a great God. We never have to fear persecution. We never have to fear that we won't be adequate for it. God will give us the ability. God has made us adequate. He's given us a fabulous message. And he's saying, do you know who I am? And if we know who he is, the only possible appropriate next question is, what shall I do? And I pray that even this week you'll be asking that question, what shall I do? Not, God, can you help me with what I think I should do? But God, what shall I do? Some of those answers will only come to you with extended prayer. God may be calling you to that. Some of those answers are going to come as you pour over the scriptures and find out what the word of God says. But whatever it takes, whatever effort is involved, pour yourself into that question. What shall I do? And then whatever he says, run in the path of his commands. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. And Lord, I just thank you so much for the church, God. I'm just, I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, I don't even know how possibly appropriately to describe my own gratitude, Lord, for salvation, much less allowing us to be all in this body of Christ and to share the love of Christ and the, the mission that you've called us to and the, and the opportunities, God, to, to be a part of your great work, Lord. You have excelled and gone way over the top, Lord, and you have made us citizens of your kingdom. God, we, we were headed for punishment, for a good flogging for all eternity. But God, you adopted us. But God, you, through your meritorious act of sacrifice of Jesus, adopted us and made us citizens. And God, through this priceless gift of your own son, we have become yours. We thank you. And we pray that you'd use each man and each woman and each young person this week to advance the cause of Christ through our testimony and through the opportunities and divine appointments that you've already prepared in advance for us to walk in. May you find us faithful. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.